Welcome back to Real Voices of Game Productions. I'm Dave D'Agostino, and I'm joined by my co-host and star of the show, Sal Marinello, and this is the Hot Corner with Coach Sal. Brings you electric content every single week, and we got a great show in store for you today. Before we get to Sal, just want a message to our audience. We eclipsed 17,800 subscribers this morning. I kind of predicted it yesterday. I was sad that I threw it out there, hoping that I wouldn't jinx it, but uh, it's inevitable. We're, we're gaining ground every day. But 17,800 subscribers continue to download, listen, like, subscribe, rate, and review. The rate and review helps us battle the analytics of the podcast world like we do in baseball. We can keep giving you great content like Coach Sal does every week here, Apple, Amazon, Spotify, or Stitcher. Those are our streaming devices. You can find another one. Let me know. I will subscribe to that as well. Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. I'm still fiddling around with who I'm going to answer live this morning, so something may come up here that could prompt which direction I go, but I get back to everybody privately and one person live on Facebook. 72 countries, grassroots, all the way to MLB front offices. We're just trying to build a better baseball IQ, and actually we venture out in other sports too, building a better IQ with sports in general, and we are starting to touch in on life if you pay attention closely enough. And as we start the show, just prepare to embrace some of the uncomfortable truths that are happening in baseball and sports, because uh, this program has no time for comfortable lies. And with that, Sal, welcome back to your show. Hey, Dave, great to be here and uh, looking forward to what you get me to say this week. Yeah, we uh, we are episode 186 now, so it's hard, uh, it's hard for me to believe that we're getting up close to 200 now. Uh, we kind of... Started started slow, one show, then two, and then all of a sudden we're up to six. And uh, just a teaser for the audience, we have uh, connected with three other individuals that are, have been a part of our show that uh, may be joining our cast of characters here shortly. So, And the re, the resurgence of our roundtable will be coming back when we hit June. So um, in, in with some new and, and back with some old. So where do you want to start today, Sal? Well, um, what do you want to start with, the training Let's go with the training. I always like the the kind of general fitness trend that seems to be um, on the social media because so many people get their info from that, that it's uh, a good place to start. And it's such a good place in a bad way. It's a good place of, for misinformation and, and flat out bad information to be disseminated. So if we could kind of jump the line and keep people from falling prey to some of this, even if it's one person, that's a good, that's a good job. Yeah. Here, here's uh, my, you know, I brought, I brought this up. I think we're going in the direction of low intensity fat burning. Is that the, yeah. 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 Um, yeah. I see. I might, and I, I, I joke half joke, half not, but, um, I know walking is a good exercise, uh, and it's low intensity, but, um, as the heart rate increases, doesn't that, and I'm, correct me if I'm wrong, obviously the heart rate, increases doesn't that trigger more fat burning well let's let's just let's let's separate the two let's separate let's separate the uh biological process if you want to put it that way from just the the benefit of exercise so there's a lot of benefits that come from a simple 30 minute 45 minute walk around your neighborhood with some pace to it and despite and I, we may have said this on the show, but I know I tell people this all the time. Despite the fact that I enjoy working out at a higher intensity, that's my golf, that's my tennis, that's my pickleball, whatever people's uh, avocations are. Mine is I enjoy the workout uh, partially because I enjoy it, partially because I do spend so much time in my facility and other places where it's conducive to that. So to me, if that's my enjoyment. However, the research shows that the largest benefit from exercise comes from doing the bare minimum. So <clears throat> if you were to look at the statistics and the research that's been done, the biggest bump in improvements to lifestyle and longevity and health come from or are between the group that does nothing and the group that does the bare minimum. So there's a huge jump in your improvement of your lifestyle just from getting off the couch and saying, doing that 35 minute, 40 minute walk around your neighborhood three to four times a week and maybe throw in some stretching. That group has the biggest separation. If you take that group that does that bare minimum and then compare their longevity, health, all that good stuff to the group of 
where I'm probably considered in that higher level of activity, there's a, an incremental improvement, but it's not enough necessarily to say everybody needs to do this high end stuff. That so that there's a big disconnect there. You don't have to go crazy and do a tough mutter and be a crossfitter and run marathons or be a competitive whatever to get the benefits of longevity. You can do the bare minimum. So that's the first thing. So that's so my why comment was a misnomer then. What I said initially that was that's that without knowing set your point up, right? Yeah. So so that that's one thing. And now there's this whole other layer that's been put on top of it through the fitness diet industry. And again, it's unfortunate, but in, in this field that I'm in, there's very rarely a new idea. And if there is a new idea, it's usually relegated to the fringes because the vast majority of people that are in the position of power and influence don't want to have a challenge to their authority. So they like to relegate and and downplay. And you could just see comments on people's accounts. If you follow anybody, you know, even the nonsense I, you know, in the, in, in the relatively speaking, I have a small account. I don't have a lot of people. However, every time I bring up a point about the bench press, there are the bench press bros that leap to the defense of that position. They can't have anybody question. And Dave, we've talked about other Issues in life where we see that same thing occurring. Oh, yeah. So it's a telltale indoctrination right there. Whenever whenever somebody's indoctrinated, it's like death when you question them. Correct. And they don't want to have to prove themselves or account for why they say and do what they do. And this we could tie into the baseball scene, which we always are talking about on our private texts, that these people in position just keep making the same mistakes. No one questions them because everybody's part of this machine that it behooves them to just keep on going. And we could look at the baseball injuries as a great example of that. No one is questioning. So if you look at a bigger account, I have a, a, a guy that's a colleague of mine, local basketball trainer named Bobby White. I recommend you guys look him up. It's White, W-H-Y-T-E. He is a very successful basketball coach. And when I say coach, I mean he works with players and, and helps them develop for the college game and high school game. And he is very off the mainstream, and he constantly deals with attacks because he dares to take a different stance than what's what's considered the norm. So we have this at work. And, and in our field, again, they regurgitate the nonsense from 50 years ago. You'll still see things in featured in magazines and websites and other posts that are the same crap you would have seen in 1975 in Muscle and Fitness or one of the other bodybuilding magazines that's been repackaged and re-edited to sound modern but it and current, but it's not. And this low-intensity fat burning is the perfect example of that. Have you seen those posts, Dave, at all on internet, on Instagram? Yeah. Yeah. So what they do is they take a little bit of science and extrapolate it to the point where it's ridiculous. And so here's the concept and I, I struggle to try to make this clear. So Dave, you're my you're my conscience here, you're my check to make sure I'm making it clear. If you work out at say let's just use a, an an even number, you walk at 3 miles an hour on the treadmill and you increase that to say 3.5, which is a warm-up walk at best, and over time maybe you add some incline to that, your heart rate at some point is going to go up, but then it stays in what, again, they call this fat burning mode. So you will burn the majority of the calories as fat, will be fat. So say, let's again, take an easy, even number in an hour on the treadmill where you walk no faster than 3.5 or 3.7. We're quibbling here because these tenths of a mile still don't matter but say 3.5 and at maybe four to five to 6% incline, you're going to burn most of those calories as fat. But that total number, Dave, that absolute number is going to be very low. So say, let's take a number like 60, 60 calories, 70 calories in that hour of walk, walking really slow. Okay. And of that 70 calories, say a hundred percent of those calories that you burn are fat. So you can say, Walk slow and burn all fat. 
But the thing they leave out is you burn out such an insignificant, you burn such an insignificant amount of calories that it's an incredible waste of time. And I'll put in quotes effort. Does that make sense so far? Yeah. Yeah. So the counter to that is what I promote. And I'm not just me, but I'm of the school of thought that let me have someone for 20 minutes and get them to the point where they're working at an incredibly high level of intensity, even if it's relative to their own capability, they're going to burn more total calories. And as a percentage of that total, they'll, even though it's less of a percentage, say they only burn 30% of the calories in that high intensity workout or from fat, that absolute number is going to be higher because they're going to burn more calories as a result of their workout. So they might not burn 100% of the calories, but in 20 minutes, they may burn the same amount of calories of fat. They may still burn 60 calories of fat and probably more if that workout goes a little longer. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, okay. so far, so good. So that's, so that's basically the big lie here. What, what they're, they're not telling you is, yeah, you're, you'll burn 100% of those calories as close to that as possible will be fat, but you could burn more fat if you worked out harder for a less period of time and get the added benefit that you can derive from getting your heart rate up and getting your respiratory rate up. Yeah. That's, that's kind of the direction I go less time, more intense. What would prevent somebody from doing that? I mean, is, uh, I guess when you're talking about that person who's inactive to finally getting off the couch, is it better to go slow to get to fast or I guess it's dependent. No, because you know, once you get out of that 30, out of that 30 minute walk after say, let's say you're going to take your, your quintessential couch, couch potato and get them up on their feet to the point where they're walking three times a week, four times a week, 30 minutes, 40 minutes, somewhere in that range, though, those physical improvements kind of level off. So what I tell people is you don't need to walk further. Once you get to that 45 minute time you don't need to walk further. You need to cover more ground in that 45 minutes. And that's why I encourage people to, even if they're not walking on a track, which can, be, which can be boring and you have a nice neighborhood, have an idea of what the distance of your route is or your route is. So you can always see how far you're walking in that period of time if you don't have a pedometer or another way to measure your distance. Yeah, and no, I like that too. That way, you know, in today's world, people are... Um... You know, I guess it goes away from the, that more is better mentality, but the the amount of time, even in the weight room, you know, I do the same thing. If I want to increase my intensity and I happen to be doing something with, whether it's weights or mobility, I just decrease the amount of rest in between my sets. And then for me, that gives me a, a more intense workout rather sure. than. And, 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 so here's the thing to remember when you're talking about intensity, in a workout, it's not a subjective measure of, wow, that was a hard workout for me because there are things you can do. There's two, there's two parameters to keep in mind, intensity and volume. So as the volume goes up, the intensity goes down. It doesn't matter how quote hard the workout is. The, the sheer fact of the more you do, the less intense what you're doing is because I'll use a great example and it, it'll dovetail into one of our other subjects here. When we talk about sprinting, if you are truly sprinting and let's say with the novice, someone who we're just getting to that point where we're going to, going to do what I would consider a quote sprint workout, we're going to do 20 to 30 yards. And this is not my athlete. This is my recreational person who's coming to me to get fit feel more capable, feel better about how they train. We're going to talk about like 20, 30 yard sprint. Once you get past a certain amount of sprints, it's no longer a sprint and it's no longer high enough intensity because you've done so much that you can no longer go as hard as you can and make it a sprint workout. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. Okay. And and we're uh, a great example, Dave, you'll, you'll see this. It's a, a little different distance, but you'll see when coaches use gassers, which is one of the worst conditioning modes you can use, a gasser is down, back, down, and back, the width of a field usually as far as I see. 
So what you'll get is that first 54 or 52 yards, whatever the width of a field is, is a really good sprint. And then every lap that follows that becomes slower and slower to the point where when they finish, those athletes are no longer sprinting. So you're not really working high intensity and you're not really working speed. You wind up getting your your athletes in that muddle, I'll call it a muddle zone, where it's really not doing anything but maybe building some general capacity and building their ability to, to run that gasser, but not even that well and not even that's going to translate into improved performance. So that's where, that's a great example of someone will say, wow, that was intense. We ran five gassers, but the reality is it was the opposite of intense and it was high vo- it's a high volume low intensity workout in the mind of the person you know administering the, the gasser they think that it's a sprinting exercise or is it just one of those unquestioned you know i guess cannons of, of football or whatever sport they're doing it in yeah it's a it's a quote conditioning period and they don't realize that all conditioning First of all, what's your definition of conditioning? And all conditioning is not is not equal and is not appropriate for what your task is. My gold standard conditioning drill that's used to build the speed and capacity of field sport athletes, and it would work great with basketball players, court sport athletes as well, are 110-yard sprints. If you know, we did that at every college place and high school I've been at and we've had incredible success and have had low injury rates and our athletes are always ready to go and prepared. And it's based on when you do these things, Dave, if you're not using a stopwatch and a, a stopwatch for your work and your rest periods, then you're also just guessing and not doing anything that really is going to improve. Your, your athletes. I got two, two questions on it. One, the significance of the 110. Why, why 110? And then I'll, I'll follow. I find, I find that for, you know, if you want to be a track athlete, if you really have the time, you know, the four, if you look at the workouts for your 400 meter runners, those are the toughest workouts that would also be appropriate for a field or court sport athlete because of the time of that sprint, what's involved how you do it. In my opinion, you don't need to do that because it, it takes, it's a longer workout. So the 110, Dave, especially when you get to a, a higher level high school athlete that say even is going to play at a high level D3, certainly at D1, if those athletes can complete that sprint in 15 seconds and do so with 75 seconds of rest and repeat that from anywhere from eight to 12 repetitions, depending on varsity, D2, D3, D1, age also. If you could get those athletes to complete that workout, they're going to be able to handle anything. Uh, it's a, a, like I said, the 15-second sprint is going to be close to what you're going to have to do at the high end at the in any of those sports. The recovery time is three seconds. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, five seconds for every one second of work, which is right in the sweet spot of rest to recovery for a field court sport athlete. So for me, it checks all the boxes. And as I said, I've had a lot of experience and success with that at all levels. That was the, my, you answered my next question. I was going to ask the rest to recovery. And I know probably different for each person, but roughly you said five to one. Yeah. And then once, once uh, I would say the low end is, is three to, uh, it really should be one. It's one to five. The, the low end is one to three. If you do a one to three, it's especially for these athletes that aren't truly running track. I keep the distance a little shorter for that, uh, for that, conditioning mode. Very rarely would I do more than four 110s in that one to three because it's very, very difficult. And the other side of that is I want to keep the time to completion as close to what their top end speed is because that's the other 
component that usually is missing in these conditioning workouts that are supposed to be making you better for your sport is they don't keep the speed component at the forefront. So I don't want you to run those sprints ultimately slower than is your sprint speed because then you're slower. We're making you slower. That And that's what the gasser does. The first 50 yards is fast. The second 50 yards is slower. And then the third and fourth laps of that gasser doesn't resemble your sprint. So you're not, you're getting, actually teaching your body to get slower. That makes sense. That's uh you answered my third question. That's why I love our conversations here. The, so um, with, and I was, this is a third question I was going to ask in a, as kind of an add-on. Do you get involved with heart rate variability at all? That's kind of a, a new wave thing that the, the average person, they got those little Apple watches. And um, I do it sometimes when I, when I ultra, I like to train at a certain level. I got that from when I was you know, obviously a basketball player, but um I'm not super scientific about it. What's the validity of, of the heart rate variability? If you have any, and I don't mean to throw an audible into you, into this, but do you have experience with that? Well, I, I, tr- I it's very difficult. I, I don't, I don't train with that because usually in my setting, if it's a team setting, especially you don't have the, the time or the ability you can use that as a guideline for, athletes who are training on their own and have those devices. Everyone has these Fitbit, Apple Watch things that um, can really give you a great idea for are you training as hard as you can. On the other end of it, I'm so familiar with what I'm trying to accomplish. I know those certain, and I just don't use the 110s. I have a variety of sprint philosophies or approaches I use, whether it's a 60-yard shuttle, which is 15 yards four times, whether it's a flat-out 60-yard sprint, 40-yard sprint, 110 sprint. And I also do nonlinear sprinting, which we can get into after this. And if you want to ask me about that, I'll tell you. So yeah. I know by based on work to rest and watching these athletes, what we need to do, I don't really have the time or that honestly, the headspace, the, the bandwidth to do that during a practice, especially when you have a large group of guys or girls that you're working with. Yeah. And I, I, I don't use that stuff personally. I do the old fashioned way with my finger up to my jugular. jugular yeah. But, um, yeah, I, I find it that that concerns me with the kind of going over science with it, because just like with, with baseball, we talk about, you take a little bit of that intuition, learning your body, understanding your body, and people become slaves almost to whatever the Apple Watch tells them, whatever kind of watch they're using. So I do see it as a productive tool, but, you know, use the right way. Uh, with with the nonlinear running, I'm interested in that. I'm intrigued. So, Dave, you've seen enough. Well, let's talk about baseball. Uh, aside from running to first base, how much straight line running in, is there in baseball? Not too much. No, even running the first base, unless it's an infield ground out, you're 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 rounding in some capacity. Coming so through. right there, we see. I'm telling you right now, we're seeing a, a a cause for injury at in baseball. How many times have you seen high intensity sprints performed on any kind of nonlinear pattern? And that's one of the things I look at. I like the straight line conditioning because it gives you some measurables. It gives you an easy way to get a group of athletes to do something and that's going to improve their conditioning. But the advent of these multi-use fields, these multi-use turf, artificial turf fields provide provided me with a great opportunity to use these linear, non-linear sprint conditioning drills. So picture your center circle, usually that encompasses the logo or encircles the logo at midfield that is approximately depending on your field anywhere from 55 to 65 yards so if you cut that in half or use the entire circle that is a phenomenal way to get non-linear sprinting in so i do it so picture a field right if you're looking at it from the the ideal tv angle where the logo is at the normal position and you have the circle around it and if you look at the 50 
uh, you could say from the 50 to the other 50. So if you're running, so and also consider that big circle like a clock where 12 is at the top, right? You could run counterclockwise or clockwise, and you should all obviously alternate when you do this nonlinear running, but you don't always want to run to the same side. That's a phenomenal way of building in uh, that nonlinear pattern into a conditioning drill. So I'll use that circle, which is great. I'll use half of it. What's also, Dave, a great, and you could do this with any of your teams, you take half of them and put them on one end. On So say at the 50-yard line, which would be 12 o'clock if you want to turn that circle into a clock, and you put the other half of the group on the 6 o'clock, which is on the 50-yard line closer at the bottom of the logo, and you have both teams run and have them do a relay-type race you can that's a great way now you're adding competition into the conditioning drill which is better than any clock which is better than any timekeeping method because when you put these athletes in a competitive situation they'll run I've had when I was doing my winter conditioning with one of my lacrosse teams we would do 20 minutes of that sometimes and these kids are actually working at their full capacity because they want to win the race. If we had a 20-minute conditioning period where we're trying to get kids to run 30, 40, 45, 55-yard sprints, they're going to peter out mentally and physically much quicker. Yeah, I agree. I call that the uh, the sea biscuit phenomenon, if you ever saw the movie. Yeah. Sea biscuit could run, and then until the horse saw somebody eye to eye, that's when it would take off. And then there's the other arc on the field that you'll see. I don't know if it's a soccer or field hockey crease. I think it might have to do with field hockey. That is, it is basically not even a half circle, but it's a long, I believe it's about 60 yards. That again, you have athletes run. What I like to do, Dave, is have them run one. You have one athlete on the inside of the line and one athlete on the outside of that narrow line. And you have them sprint and you have them race. The other thing I do is set up cones so they can't cut inside too far, but they I also don't let them come across the line. So on top of this being conditioning, Dave, this is a method I use to see how athletes control themselves when they run. Because when they come out of that turn, frequently what you see them do is start flailing their arms and they can't stay on their side of the line that is a good indication to me that we need to work on elements of control in their sprint style, which also is something we can talk about when we're done talking about the conditioning here. I was going to ask that, and you touched on it just right now. When, when you're evaluating, you know, I'm sure you, you've got your checkpoints. What are the first body parts to go? And, and is, there, is there an order? Is it, is it all personal? Yeah, you'll see the arms go because the arms flail to compensate for the lack of control that they have because they aren't running properly. And that's the simple general explanation. Usually not running properly is the, the shoulders are not dictating the pace of the hip movement and the hip cycle. The leg cycle is driven from your shoulders. It's not a, a ground up. It's a, it's a top-down organization that you need to be, uh, you need to have in order to run properly. And it starts with the position of the head. So this is getting into the sprint. Did you want to make that transition into the into the sprinting? Yeah, let's do that. That's logical. All right. So let, let's add a precursor or a preamble to this discussion is if you cannot sprint properly all, and I'll take another step back. If you, Sprinting is the highest intensity activity you could do where you're running hair on fire fast as you can running away from the bear, whatever analogy or, or imagery you want to use, that is where you see how someone moves, and that's where you'll see where things fall apart. So if you can't sprint, if you can't sprint properly, all your other sub-maximal efforts are going to be less than ideal, especially any kind of agility. And most sports rely upon agility as opposed to flat out speed. We're not talking about track and field. We're talking about field and court sports. So if you can't sprint properly, your agility is going to suffer. So that's where this is all born out of. And it's a philosophy that is very well laid out by a, what I consider a, the expert in the field 
Franz Bosch, F-R-A-N-S-B-O-S-C-H. He is from the Netherlands, and he works with their jumpers and sprinters. He also, I believe, works with their national baseball team. And he he, he is a world-renowned, sought-after expert. A lot of rugby and soccer teams work with him. I know he was involved with, I'm going to say it was the Japanese rugby team who engineered an enormous run in the world tournament one year and upset, had some great upsets. And um, he has a very, very unique philosophy, very well thought out philosophy. And his, he has a great saying, there are many ways to waltz. There's only one way to sprint. And why he uses that waltzing analogy is because waltzing can be done at all different speeds and sprinting is sprinting. And probably because he's Belgian, he uses the waltz as an example, right? But uh, I believe that. And so what we're looking at is the elements that allow an athlete to control the sprint. So you have to have good posture, right? That's head. The head has to be still and the head has to be up, not forward, but up. The shoulders have to be in control of your hip cycle. And there's ways we do that and ways I uncover how someone moves and how they run. The foot has to be under the hip, which is the kind of the third point that follows the first two. If your head is in the right position and your shoulders are moving properly, your foot should be under your hip when it hits the ground. Okay, those are the basic things. If your foot can be in the proper position, you don't want your foot to hit all as one unit. You don't want your heel to hit at the same time your forefoot hits. That's another thing. That's kind of like a, a, a tweak we get into as part of the foot in the ground under the hip. And the fourth, 4A or 4B, whatever you want to refer to it as, is your cadence, is the frequency of your running, uh, your sprinting cycle. Like it. I'm writing down as you talk here, so I always keep a legal pad. And I do advise our audience when we have Sal's shows, keep a legal pad by your listening device. You can write unless you're driving, um, then listen to it again. Now, with when you're watching, and I'm, I guess this is a, I'm throwing a generality out there. Let's say you're watching. You know, we got the lacrosse national championships coming up, and move move to, you know, whatever athlete you want. But how many of those kids, on average, at that high level of sports, do you see and say? They don't run properly. 90%. Wow. And, and, and um, you know, I say that as being a pain in the ass, excuse the language, but about a stickler for the finer points, because basically that's what it is. You, you, you hear these stories all the time, Dave. I remember growing up when Jack Nicholas was before Tiger Woods got on the scene. All these great golfers are always fine-tuning and working on the elements of their swing. Sprinting is the very exact thing. However, because someone can be fast and maybe more agile or look better moving than someone else, very little attention is paid, especially to these higher-level athletes, to how they actually are moving. And that's one of the things that I think sets me apart is that I spend time looking at how they move and, and try to correct that. Instead of adding another hour and a half workout just for the sense, just for the sake of them working out. If somebody came in and they was regardless of the sport and, and, you know, you said, Hey, we're going to put whatever ball stick back glove you use aside. And we're going to teach you how to run properly. And then I guess in essence, your mobility training uh, for the most part, how much better an athlete could they become? I, I mean, how much better would they become at their sport by just perfecting that? Well, it's, it's, that's, that's what, how you improve the tech. If you can improve the coordination of somebody and that running technique is really in, in through the drills I use, that running technique is improving their coordination. So you are making them a better athlete. That's athleticism encompasses how you run. So if you're a lousy runner, that means your athleticism isn't what it should be. And we need to fix that. Yeah. And we, it, some of that, I guess some of that gets, mask because it's it is a global pandemic and in a sense where you're saying 90 percent aren't running properly so it's it's hard to i guess pinpoint i guess it's not glaring then right uh, except for you except to you 
that these athletes could really improve their skill set with their sport through athleticism, in essence, through running and coordination. Sure. If you look at if you look at the I don't know, what's the the age where you'll look at a kid and say, geez, you know, that kid could play at the next level. Is it 12, 13? It depends on a, a male or a female. Yeah. I mean, not not to get personal with people, but post puberty, you know. Okay. So, right. So, but once you get to that point, you're probably, and I'm not, I, I know in lacrosse, a lot of these coaches are looking at stick skills and sometimes the size they advantage they have over some of these other players can be a great mask of deficiency in other areas. So their stick skill, and I would compare it to sometimes you could have a basketball player who was such a good shooter that you forget to look at maybe how they move and do other things on the court that could make them even more deadly. And I think what coaches do is they overlook some of the other fundamental elements of athleticism because these some of these athletes are so good at the thing that's most important in the sport, they look at, or that's the most visible, they forget to look at those other things. Yeah, that You just articulated what I was trying to say before, and that's, I, I appreciate you cleaning that up. That's, that's exactly what I was trying to, to, uh, to ask you before, and that's the point our audience, I hope our audience grabs onto. Um, you know, there, there's, I look at my son, Tanner, who catches, and that's my uh, focal point all the time is, am I so enthralled with the, the catching aspect, his ability to call games, ability to block balls, receive all the nuances of catching, Am I overlooking something for him that, as like you're saying, some some of these athletic points that could enhance that because those are foundational principles that you know without those he can't do the other things as well. So well, that, you know, and the other big part of that, Dave, is especially the young kid that those athletic components or lack thereof, especially coordination, will put a ceiling on the skill acquisition that they acquire through the rest of their career. So if you have these kids, these 12, 13, 14 year old kids, you know, the boys get into puberty a little later than the girls, but once, once you get past a certain level, and I don't believe it's ever not worth working on, but you, you're, if you're talking about a kid that you want to play D one or has other tools to possibly play D one, and, and, you know, let's not be crazy. I'm not being a crazy person here with it, but there are kids you look at sometimes in seventh and eighth grade and you say that kid has the frame or that kid has some element of their ability that will give them that chance. If you don't do everything you can to develop their coordination when they're the most sensitive to those changes being introduced, you're going to limit how high their skill acquisition ceiling is. And for someone who wants to, who could play a division one sport, that could be the difference between division one and division three. Yeah. I, I, how, what, what would you say, especially, I don't know. I think the women's game, I, I, I actually have experience coaching men's and women's basketball at both the D at all three levels, right? D one, D two, D three. Would you say foot, Speed, footwork, lack thereof, is a bigger detriment to the male basketball player than the woman basketball player. Um, I would, I would say, as you as you said, it footwork to me, you know, if we're talking basketball, but regardless of sport, but basketball in general is the single most determining factor. Um, you know, outside of the obviously the freakish athleticism, and the size, and the but when you're looking at skills um, that enhance the athleticism footwork is what I look at because a great point guard is only going to have the ball in their hands maybe 10% of the time but they're going to be on their feet 100% of the time so um, I don't know that it's so yeah okay here I, I think it's important to the male game because the male game is played in smaller spaces with more contact maybe than the women's game and it's played above the rim in some cases Okay. The women's, women's game is all below the rim. So I would say the ability to, and the bodies are getting bigger. The court's the same size. I would, I would say in order for a, a female player to get their shot off. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I would say here's my because yeah, they've got to get it off below the rim too. So that's harder. But with the men, obviously you get the length to, to cause problems. So yeah, I don't know if I could put a, a higher value on one than the other. 
Well, here's here's my take, and you can tell me what you think. My thought is there's less of a size variability with women. So if you're that, if you're not that post player, especially, you know, I don't know how many, I'm not an expert. I don't know how many pure post players that you're depending on in the women's game. But my sense is there's less variability in the size of the women in the women's game. If a woman player, girl player can get her feet to be as great as they can possibly be to the most close to their ceiling, that's going to give them a better chance because there's a, just the girls you've sent to me, Dave, they're very similar in size. The girls I've worked with on the rosters I've been working with in my career, you might have two or three bigger girls, but the majority of the girls are much closer in size. If and women, if their feet are better, that's going to give them a huge advantage because the old joke is you can't teach someone to be seven feet tall. Yeah. But if they're seven feet tall, you could always get them good enough to be a weapon. I, I that's just my sense. My my sense is the more athletic you could get our our female players, that could be the big difference between Division three and Division one and being really good at, at either of those. Yeah, and, and I did a study. This was well over a decade ago, but I I coached both genders um, at high levels in, in in basketball, and I found that the travel call was the most frequent turnover. The unforced travel call was the most frequent turnover in the women's game. And again, this this is over a decade, but I wanted to know what I needed to prioritize as opposed to when I was coaching the men. And so we we worked predominantly on footwork, whether it was coming off screens, setting screens, receiving the ball, defending the ball. And so I guess that kind of answers answers to your point a little bit more where, and not that I de-emphasize that with the men, but I found that in the turnover alone, turnover, obviously you're giving the ball to your opponent and it's disadvantaged the other way. Those are easy baskets you're giving up. And if we could eliminate that, um, that one uh, turnover, we got more shots at the basket, you know, complicated simplicity. I wanted more better Pretty shots. Good. So, yeah. So with the women, I noticed that was a, a huge, and I don't know why I didn't get into the why I just saw it as uh, it was prevalent. So we worked on it. And, and as we got better, I think, you know, as I took over to, you know, maybe end of season, we got, you know, seven, eight more possessions a game because of it. And I think we got better shots on the shots we were already getting maybe uncontested as opposed to contested. So, um, yeah, so I, I think that's a fair point to take a look at with that. And I can't tell you how many kids I have who play basketball that can't shuffle properly. I don't know what it is about how they teach shuffling in basketball, but it is this mechanical, stilted, not athletic technique that has been become part of how basketball players shuffle. I, I don't get it, but I see yeah. that so much. I think it's a good point. I, I want to, I'm going to write that down. Cause I think I want to get into that deep in our next show, if you don't mind, because oh. I, we, we, I watched that and I'll give my older daughter as an example. She plays soccer also, and she plays basketball. And I notice when she's on ball on a defender and she gets that defender uh, going fast in the direction she wants her to, she she crosses over almost like a defensive back, yeah, um, and sprints alongside as opposed to the the short half steps that we've all been teaching for you know decades uh, with basketball, and it's it's really challenging if that's what we're kind of getting into. But I, I'd like to get into that a ton because I I notice that when I see men or women do that on basketball and they look more like a defensive back as opposed to that half step, and the half step's important, but uh, you know you've got to be able to do both. When I see somebody do that, so okay, that's higher level. Right. Well, I think what you have is it's born out of weakness. It's born out of weakness, which results in the stance being too wide. If your stance is too wide, you cannot move with your – so say you're in a stance and you are you want to move to your right. If your stance is too wide, you're going to move that right – if you move that right foot, you're not gaining ground. So you then take a very small step with that right foot, and then you take a bigger step with the back foot. So you're never leading where you're pushing off and gaining ground on the front side. That was, that's the termino terminology I use. Every time you move your foot, you want to project your hips. So what happens also, These at most athletes, their feet are too wide. They move their back foot first and or lean. So if I'm going to my right, my stance is too wide. 
if you can envision this, yep. I'm leaning to my right, and my first step most times, Dave, is with my left foot, not me, but these athletes. So the offensive player has already moved and moved their feet. The defensive player is leaning because they're too wide, so they don't gain ground with the front side foot, so they lean, take that back foot to move, and then what happens is that sets up this pattern where they have to cross because they're too slow because they're not gaining ground with that first that first step. Yeah, I like that. I mean, that's that's the the ideal. Combining the two of them is what you look for defensively in basketball, where you're able to gain ground with that front step, like you're saying. But once you get them going, um, you your your idea on defense with certain defenses, you want to get that offensive player racing a little bit out of control. And once you get them, can you go from that? gain ground and I call it a half step with the, with the front with the front foot leading into that crossover step like you would do with a D back there's that combination that is it's lacking uh, a ton where I'm seeing a lot of what you're saying where the it's 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 poor stance uh, and it's a movement with the backside foot which again like you said gains no ground you feel like you're moving but you're not and then the offense already has a half step on you so yeah, I think that's that's uh, and again we're not a visual show, but I think you painted a good picture for our well, audience. And the other thing is, too many athletes are flat-footed, so their heel is hitting at the same time as the forefoot. I could do an hour on that, but that's that also is the problem because if you're on your heel, if your foot is all hitting the ground at the same time as one piece, I say it's like dropping a steak off a table; it slaps the ground. You cannot extend, so you're supposed to have this the 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 Holy Grail is triple extension and, and everything we do running and jumping. So that means your hip, knee, and ankle have to extend. If your heel, if your foot hits flat, you're not able, you're not extended at any of those joints. So you're not getting what we call a hip lock, which is necessary to get any kind of power into that, whether it's lateral, forward, rotational. So, yeah. and again, this is a whole other rabbit hole we could go down with poor ankle range of motion, which we spoke about one on one of our first shows with the group, poor ankle range of motion and weak feet. When I'm talking about weak feet, I'm actually talking about feet are too weak to even get into that position where you think about if you're sitting in a chair, think about the bodybuilders doing a old school calf raise where they're rolling up. You have athletes who are too weak to even perform that motion and hold their body up being on the forefoot. And it doesn't, you don't get better at it from doing calf raises. That's not what I'm driving at, but I'm showing or trying to get you to think of the action that the foot needs to make. So that that's a whole other area we could spend way more time and then you'd probably want to on. Yeah. Well, we got notes for the next shows. So what about the lacrosse? You wanted to touch just briefly on the lacrosse finals are coming up. I know you're a big lacrosse fan. Both your boys play. Anyone who's so inclined, you're going to see the best of the best this weekend and next weekend. We have the um, the semifinals of the national tournament in Division One, and if anyone really wants to dive deep, the Division Two and Three teams are right there. The division, the big difference, and I don't know about basketball, but the big difference between our lacrosse, what's happened in lacrosse, is you're looking at teams that are in D two and D three right now that are probably better than the bottom half of, or at least as I'm going to say probably better than most of the bottom half of the 75 or so division one teams. So you're not really going to say, Oh, this is, it's not like when you watch the D three football championships and you don't have a guy on that field, maybe one who possibly could be on a D one roster. You're going to see unbelievable lacrosse at all levels. So this weekend, the, 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 there's two games up in Albany on Saturday, Virginia, Georgetown and Duke in Michigan. And on Sunday, which I'm going to go down to Annapolis, you're going to see Penn state army and Notre Dame Johns Hopkins. So you're, you're getting four great games and those winners will get together next weekend and they play like the basketball final four. They'll play a game. There'll be two games Saturday and the national championships will, uh, will, will be Memorial day, Monday. Nice. Who's your team? Who are you thinking? Who do you think is going to come out? Well, you have the top three are still in it. So the season ended and depended on which poll you looked at. Duke was one. Virginia and Penn, and I'm sorry, Virginia and Notre Dame are right there. It's a toss up. Duke had a really tough game against Delaware that they probably should have lost. Delaware 
very underrated, tough team. Lost by a goal or two. They just ran out of steam down the stretch. Uh, so those are your, going to be your favorites. I like Army just because they're so tenacious and they are skilled that it's a good dark horse. But Hop, Hopkins was a year a year in, year out perennial power that recently has come back to the mix. Uh, so there, there's going to be great games. I'm, I'm looking forward to watching the games both Saturday and Sunday. And, and actually being there on Sunday will be amazing. If you've never gone to a D1 game, especially if it's at a, at a venue that you really can be close to the field. It's a special, it's a special thing. We have a big contingency in upstate New York. That's uh, my hometown area. So that Albany area. So listeners, uh, you got a shot, uh, head out there and check out some lacrosse. And if you're down in Annapolis, search, uh, search for coach Sal down there. So see if you can buy him, buy him a beverage <laughs> of his choice. So, uh, but Sal, thanks so much for a great show again. Got episode 186 right now with the hot corner with Coach Sal. Uh, big reason why our subscribers are continuing to rise, 17,800. Make sure you download, listen, like, subscribe, rate, and review. We can keep giving you great content like we do here with the hot corner every week. Apple, Amazon, Spotify, or Stitcher, whatever your streaming apparatus is, will accommodate Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Get back to one fan every day, live. Everybody else gets a private message back to answer their question. 72 countries, grassroots, MLB front offices. So we're making a difference. We're getting out there. People are, are liking what we're talking about, and they're contributing to it. We're just trying to build better baseball IQs, and in Sal's case, better uh, performance IQs out there. And it, it's all encompassing whatever sport is your choice. Even if you're post-athletic career, you can certainly make great use of our show here. And as we, we mentioned at the beginning and end of every show, we always tell you guys, don't, don't just believe – do your own research, but but also prepare to embrace some uncomfortable truths about baseball, about sports that we're going to bring up. Because um, this program, like all of our programs, have no time for the uncomfortable lies. We're going to challenge everything and hit it head on. So thanks again, Sal. Great show today with the Hot Corner. And look forward to next week. Yep. Have a good week, everybody. And enjoy the weekend. You too. Enjoy that lacrosse.